0: Welcome to the Determined Truth podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. And welcome back to the Determined Truth podcast. This is Vinny. I'm here with Rob and welcome to everyone. We're a uh, back and wrapping up our four-part series on how to read revelation so go back if you haven't read or not read have if you haven't listened through those other episodes we just kind of lay out an overview of revelation and then we go through three of the genres so we've talked about apocalypse prophecy and then tonight we're gonna finish up talking about letter which is the third genre of revelation are you okay with this one rob do you feel comfortable talking about this topic i think it'll be fun this isn't new for you
1: Nah, it's okay it's good <laughs>
0: It's okay. All right. Uh, Cool. So the first thing that we want to discuss is that, uh, you know, Revelation has this genre of letter. So let's not assume we know anything about letter. Can you, can you tell us what that genre is?
1: It's different than what it is in a modern day sense. So we think of the epistles of Paul, right? Philippians and Colossians as a letter, but we recognize that they're not like letters that we write to our grandma when we are little kids. That's kind of the only letter I ever think of. I don't know about you. And the same time, the book of Revelation also has this framework of being a letter. And the first thing about a letters is that they're what we call an occasional, uh, something occasioned the situation to which the author is responding or, or, or for which he is writing. So as with Colossians or Philippians, we have to go back and go, okay, who wrote this letter? Why did he write it? When did he write it? To whom did he write it? What's going on? What do we know about Colossae for the book of Colossians or what do we know about Philippi for the book of Philippians that makes Understanding the letter more uh, practical and and feasible that helps us give give us insights into it. Same thing with the book of Revelation, it's an occasion. John's writing to someone in this case, seven churches for the purpose of conveying to them a message. And as soon as we figure out, oh, it just helps illuminate what's happening for us. Why
0: is it important that we know those sorts of things about this book? Like, how how does that impact how we read it? Because don't we just read it for what it says and believe that literally? I guess that we would refer back to previous podcasts or that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, right. But of course, this, what you're saying, though, is what many people think of, right? That, oh, the book of Revelation is this is what it is. And they assume that it has some 21st or 20th century or now 21st century, meaning because John was, as we discussed last time, John was zapped into the future and he saw the future. And then he goes back and writes this letter, not knowing what he's talking about. So he just describes it the best way that he can. But as soon as you recognize that it's a letter, you go, wait a minute. No, he's writing to people of his day. With a message for them as a prophet, he wants to prophetically exhort them to do something or to not do something. And that's why he says in chapter 13, when it comes to the number of the beast, hey, if anyone has insight, calculate it, because you can figure this out. So the readers of this letter had some understanding of what's going on. And in order for us to understand it, we have to get behind that to go, okay, who's writing it? Why is he writing it? When it what's happening? What's the situation? And how would those original readers have understood it?
0: So you're just trying to be consistent with everything we've talked about in terms of how you look at any sort of genre.
1: Biblical or non-biblical, anything mm-hmm. that you, you have to know the situation behind it to what's going on. It's, it's think of it in a legal context. Yeah. You go into a court of law and, and someone says, well, you said this. And your response is, but I meant this. Mm-hmm. And to defend that you say, and this is the context in which I said that. And so, you taking it this way over here is not legit because I said it this way in this context, the same thing. So, we do that with everything. We do that with a newspaper. We do that with a, with a book. A newspaper just dated myself. Yeah, right. Uh, we do that with a book. We do that with a, t- a television show. No matter what it is, you have to simply know who's speaking and to whom is he speaking and what is he conveying to them and how would they have understood it? What would he, have the, he or she have meant f- by it and wh- how would it have been understood by them? And then you know, and I'm just going to begin to go. What it means, yeah, I'm show. thinking that
0: today I had the, the TV on and I noticed uh, the, the 1980s movie Red Dawn came on. You remember that movie? And, and I haven't seen it forever. Uh, you remember so, that one, right? I,
1: well, I don't know. I just watched a movie called, my, we went to watch a movie the other night and, yeah, right. um, <laughs> and it was called Red Dawn. And my wife said, oh okay. yeah, it's from like 1980s. But the one we watched was from 2011. Okay. So
0: they rebooted it. And so they made it about like North Korea or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you've never seen the original red Do- this is actually totally applicable to the podcast this has got to stay in now so okay. so so it, it, there was this movie it was like a 1984 or something like that comes out it a great cast of characters like the ensemble is like it's like patrick swayze and charlie sheen and 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 all these great actors who went on to have great careers like leah thompson and all these people so it, the the whole premise is that you have these kids in kind of Boondocks, uh, Colorado, and the Soviets, the KJB uh, KGB, parachute in, and they take over America. and It starts in this little town. As you have this this group of kids who they were able to escape to the mountains, but then they end up fighting against the KGB, and and they cause you know a little bit of resistance to hold things off. Right. Well, I, I remember watching this movie as a kid, right, and it was like. This is a legit threat at the time because the Soviet the 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 middle nineteen eighties we didn't know the Cold War was just a couple of years away from ending. <laughs> this is like a legit threat that people are having where this is going to be possibly the end of the world. And so you watch a movie like Red Dawn. It's like this can really happen to us, and 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 it makes sense in in you know for our context. Now, if I were to show this to some of my The show to my son, which wouldn't happen for a few years because he's only four. But, uh, you know, say say it's a number of years from now and I show him this movie, there's a lot of context that I got to fill in for him because he could appreciate the art of it and and the action and all that. But the context makes no sense to him. In terms of that, he's not, the, the emotion's not going to be revealed right. to him that it might be to me as uh, in my youth in the 1980s, right? And, and so it's the same thing when we're reading any sort of, uh, you know, literature where you really have to make sure to understand that we, we could glean something from it, but to really appreciate what's going on, it's that situation that's being talked to. And that's what kind of creates that uh, immediate application and in, in the urgency and just identifying what's happening when it comes to revelation in chapters two and three, we have these seven letters to seven churches. Uh, And and I think from a popular standpoint, I mean, it's, it's unequivocal that there's three genres in revelation. There's apocalypse prophecy and letter he tells us this, John tells us this it's popularly understood that chapters two and three are the letters. uh, And there's more to it than that, that you've already talked about. And we'll, we'll, we'll go into more, but, um, how do these specific two chapters of seven letters help us understand the book of Revelation?
1: So the first key is that the seven letters are actually intimately tied to the entirety of the whole book. And so I was recently ta- talking with a church uh, in Southern California who wanted to do a series in the book of Revelation, but they were only going to preach from chapters two and three. And as I sat down and, and taught them a little bit about the book of Revelation and kind of helped them prepare them, I said, listen, I know you're going to do seven letters. I know you're only going to stop with chapters two and three. I understand that. But you have to understand that you actually can't separate the the seven letters from the entirety of the whole book, because they're an integral part of the whole book. And so a couple of the key elements of that is is that each of the seven letters ends with this promise to the one who overcomes. And yet the fulfillment of those promises all happen later on in the book. So you realize, oh, the promises actually get fulfilled later on. So you can't take the seven letters and say, okay, these are letters, and the rest of the book is apocalyptic. And so let's separate them out. No, actually, they're intertwined. Another example of that is the end of chapter three, the promise the church allowed to see it says, if you overcome as I overcame, I'll grant you the right to sit down with me on my throne, just as I sat down with my father on his throne. So the seven letters kind of end with Jesus is sitting on the father's throne and us being promised that we're going to get to sit with Christ on his throne. Chapter four, verse one and two, then all of a sudden is I saw heaven open and there was this this great throne. And so you begin to realize, oh, look, there's there's an overlap. There's a connection between this part and that part. They in chapter five,
0: you literally have him sitting on the throne. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because that's, he overcame. He, he was a that's you right, you know, the slain went like a slain lamb.
1: And, and he's receiving the worship that the father was receiving mm-hmm. in chapter four. Yeah. So when we recognize the fact that you can't say this part's an epistle, this part's a prophecy, and this part's an apocalyptic, the whole book actually is framed as an epistle. John Revelation one, four, John says, I, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then the very last line of the whole book of Revelation is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So that's a letter. letter. (laughs) So we have this framing of the entire book as a letter. Then you have the interconnection of the seven letters to the entirety of the whole book. And you begin to realize, okay, you can't separate the letter part of it out from, from the rest of the book. So the letters are an integral part of the book. And once you figure out what the messages of the seven letters are, then you can begin to figure out, okay, how is this impacting our understanding on the rest of the book?
0: it's interesting too because I've also seen a number of churches who preach a, a, a series just on the seven letters, right? And, and they'll yeah. disconnect it from the book. Um, I, I'm just wondering how much of that is because maybe pastors don't know how to preach the rest of the book, <laughs> uh, right. and so this they, they feel like this is safe. It it's an epistle in a sense, so they could they've hung out in Paul enough because they're good Protestants, uh, or. Uh, is there a, a sense that they feel safe to connect that? Because from a theological standpoint, popular theology says, well, everything that's happened up in the first three chapters has already happened in the past. And chapter four is popularly when the rapture happens and that's all future. So this is a good dividing point. And it seems like a logical place to split it up. Do, do you think those could be possible reasons why?
1: Absolutely. And, and I don't have a problem with that. Especially if they don't feel equipped to deal with chapters four through 21 or 22, and they don't want to deal with the, the, the pushback. Because I think we discussed last time that uh, most pastors have this understanding of the book of Revelation that kind of corresponds to what the scholarly community is saying. They got a class in, in seminary that talked about the book of Revelation for one or two hours. But they mm-hmm. also don't know that they don't feel quite prepared enough to deal with the rest of the book and deal with the questions of the members of their congregation. So they can accomplish, Hey, I can preach out of revelation, but I don't have to deal with all that other stuff. Let's just deal with the seven letters. The problem then is,
0: Okay. So one of the hallmarks of, of these letters is this concept of lampstands uh, that, that we see. So what's the significance of the churches as a lampstand?
1: Well, I mean, when you hear a lampstand, what's the first thing, what, what's your first thought? What, what do you think it's conveying to you?
0: What, what I think are popular. Yeah, well, what do you, what do you suspect? Uh, in my mind, I'm going to think of temple okay, because that's going to be one of the few places that you're going to have some sort of lampstand. And I, I want to try to avoid an anachronistic, you know, kind of like little candle thing, but it's probably something bigger.
1: Okay, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So the role for the people of God in scripture is to be God's image bearers, to make Christ or God known. I mean, that that is our task. That is our role. Jesus Himself says, "I am the light of the world." But He actually also says, "You're the light of the world." Right? So, John, uh, chapter eight and chapter nine, "I am the light of the world." Nine and five, and then uh, Matthew five, "You're the light of the world." I think it's five thirteen or fourteen. In the Book of Revelation, uh, in Revelation twenty one twenty three, Jesus is the lamp, and the churches are the lamp stand upon which that lamp is is there. Now, in in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, "Look, a lamp is coming not to be hidden under a, a bushel, but to be put on." but to put on a lampstand. So it shines throughout the whole, the entirety of the house. And when Jesus says a lamp is coming, which by the way, is a good translation of the Greek. I think all of our English translations in Mark four say a lamp is brought, mm-hmm. but the Greek is actually is a lamp is coming. And the difference mm-hmm. between the two is, well, lamps don't come they're brought. Mm-hmm. So our English translations change it. But the answer is Jesus is the lamp. And when he's saying in, in Mark four, I am coming not to be hidden, but to be revealed. So the church's task, it's stated essentially by this understanding of the fact that hey, you are lamps, this is your job, this is your role, and your role is to make Christ known. Now that's going to be highly problematic because first thing that we make Christ known for is the fact that He's the King, and Caesar in Rome is not going to like that. And so this is going to be problematic for you. But this is the, this ultimately the role for the church is that is to be. So let's just let's just go to, okay, skip the next one. Seven letters. Uh...
0: You know, might be good because we could just take that chunk on lampstands and you could cut it out and move it to a later part. Couldn't you?
1: I could. Sure. Uh,
0: Cause that's something we could do is we could find once we start talking more about maybe the, the imagery of it, or is there any parts
1: that you really talk about that? Uh... No, not in these notes.
0: Aside from lampstands, then what are some other key themes that we would see in the seven letters?
1: Well, the first thing to recognize is the fact that there are seven letters and in the book of revelation, as well as in a lot of the scriptures, but especially apocalyptic literature, the number seven signifies perfection or completion. So we recognize that the seven letters representing the seven churches and there were seven actual churches. So there's, that's one reason why there's seven letters, but John chose these seven churches in order that he might have this number reflecting perfection or completion and that they represent all of Christendom. In fact, in the middle of the seven letters, which is the letter of the church in Thyatira, and in the middle of that letter, so in the middle of the middle letter, it says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. So there's this indication, the way it's structured, the fact that he's writing to all of, Christen- all, all of Christianity. Now, within the seven letters, what's interesting is five of the seven letters begin with, I know your works. Uh, I know your deeds, depending on how you want to translate them. hmm uh, in fact, the word works occurs 12 times in the seven letters. And again, you can pick and choose numbers sometimes and make them make them say things that you want them to say. But when the fact is the seven letters are, have this clear uh, indication when they begin, when they end. And within that framework, the number, the word works occurs 12 times and 12 for the number of the people of God. You can see, I know your works. I, I know your deeds. This, this is important. I think if we go back. I'm always going to refer back to this, but the parable of the sower is just so instrumental and so significant for helping us understand the scriptures. And in the parable of the sower, you know, he sows the seeds on four kinds of soils, but only one of those soils actually bears fruit. And in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. John is concerned and Jesus is concerned with the fruit of the churches. I know your works. I know your deeds. Hang in there, overcome and and be, be careful about what's happening now, because, the th- the next thing that we notice is that the seven churches are being threatened to compromise their faith, and so the letters are written. Hey, I know your works, I know your deeds. I'm the one who over- has overcome. I- I've been faithful. Hang in there and persevere to the end. And the one who overcomes, as each one of the seven letters ends, will inherit this. Will inherit. will have the. I- I'm going to give you the right to sit down with me on my throne.
0: Okay, and then a quick plug for your book, Follow the Lamb, because you have a chapter on interpreting numbers mm-hmm. uh, in the Book of Revelation. Okay. So, uh, so then seven is. While it's speaking to all of Christendom, would you say that because apocalyptic literature? Because remember, we're reading an apocalyptic letter. Uh, it's it's something where yeah, there is a literal seven number of churches, but the symbolism is probably the thing that takes priority. So it's first read in light of all the churches of, of Christendom, and guess what? Here's seven literal examples of that, but that's not the primary issue.
1: Right, right. In apocalyptic primary, writings. Yeah. Right. in apocalyptic writings. And and again, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic par excellence, if you want to call it that, that's fine. We have the book of Daniel, we have parts of Ezekiel, we have parts of Isaiah, we have parts of Zechariah, we have parts of the, of the scriptures. And of course, I think the teachings of Jesus, a lot of them are apocalyptic, because he tells parables, and he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, you have the, the heavens being open when he's baptized, you have the earthquake when he's being crucified, you have Uh, reference to the book of Joel at at Pentecost. So you have a lot of passages in scripture that are apocalyptic, but we also have apocalyptic writings that are outside of the biblical text in the Jewish world and elsewhere. And when we examine all of these, all of this literature, numbers always have this significance, uh, the symbolic significance as its primary meaning. Sometimes there's a literal meaning also. So there's seven churches. Yeah, there literally are seven churches, but the significance is always primary in the symbolic, symbolic significance of the number
0: seven. So you're not, what we're not saying now that we've actually, we're talking about the third genre of the book, we've spent three episodes now talking to different genres. We don't say, okay, we're reading the apocalypse portion now. So let's read the apocalypse part. Oh, now we're reading the prophecy part. Let's read it as prophecy. Oh, now we're jumping into letters. Let's read it as letters. It's, it's, the Neapolitan, in a sense. It's, it's, it's all one. one. It, yeah. It's one well, thing. yeah. Well, even the
1: Neapolitan doesn't quite work. because yeah, they're separated, the right? White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's more spaghetti. Chapter, <laughs> yeah. The book begins in chapter one, verse one, with the very first word in the Greek text, "Apocalypse," the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Then you have John saying, blessed the one who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. I think that's one, three. Then you have one, four, John saying, I, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So right there in the first four verses, you have all three genres. Then when you look at the seven letters, you realize, wait a minute, each one of the letters has this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's apocalyptic. So the letters actually have this apocalyptic element in it as well. Each of the seven letters begins with John saying, thus says the Lord, or thus says. Now, your English Bibles might not translate it that way, uh, but the Greek says, which thus says, and is actually used in uh, Prophetic literature to say this is what the Lord's, th- it's to introduce something that God has to say through the words of the prophet. So the letters actually begin with this hey, I'm speaking prophetically here. And then the letters have this apocalyptic catchphrase with he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then there are also letters to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Sardis. So you can see even the seven letters aren't, you can't separate them as, oh, they're letters. Because they're kind of a combination of all of the above. That's why we've done these podcasts and say, hey, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you got to have an understanding of apocalyptic literature. Because if you don't, you can't understand the seven letters. So there's, you know, these churches that do sermons on the seven letters, you're still not getting away from the apocalyptic elements of the book. And then yeah. you can't say, okay, well, they're not, they're, you know, they're not lists." Yeah, actually, they're being introduced as prophetic words to the seven churches. And then, of course, obviously, they're epistolary as well.
0: Yeah. And especially with all the blessings and curses that are happening in these, it's like, that's the nature yeah. of a prophet. So exactly. uh, so one, one popular understanding of the seven letters is that these represent like seven periods of time, like starting with the resurrection. Uh, I don't know, how, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's kind of an historicist approach to interpretation. And many of the listeners may not have heard of it because it's totally fallen out of favor now. In fact, mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone in yeah. the last hundred or more years that's actually espoused this kind of understanding. I guess, I guess maybe the last, I don't know, there's been a few people that, that have said it here, here and there, but uh, very popular in the Middle Ages, and what it says was, is that the seven churches represent seven eras, or seven ages, the first being the uh, Ephesus, and in Ephesus, they were witnesses, and they were faithful, but they were, their light wasn't shining, and then the next one's the Church of Smyrna, and that's the second era, the era of persecutions, and and you can Whenever you have an interpretation like this, what you can do is you can take something in the letter and you can make it fit to some corresponding point in history, right? It's just easy to to do that. So what they do is they say, well, the seven letters then correspond to seven periods of history. The first one was the early church and the prophetic witness of the church. The second one was the church in Smyrna, and that was the, uh, the suffering time when they were undergoing persecution. And then just keep working your way off. And whenever they do that, of course. They almost always place the current day in the seventh, right? I mean, or the seven ones about to start. By the way, Laodicea is the seventh church. And uh, you know, usually when I do a study in the Book of Revelation, I say, okay, read the seven letters and kind of contemplate them all. And then I want you to think to yourself, you know, which one fits our present context the most? Mm. Right? Which one most reflects, you know, the American church that you and I uh, dwell in? And the answer is Laodicea. So which is mm-hmm. the seventh one? Nonetheless, no, they're they're not written that way at all. There's no no indication at all that they should be taken as representing se- seven sequential eras of church history, c- climaxing in Laodicea.
0: It's funny too because while that might reflect the American church, if if we were to ask Chinese Christians, that's right. would they say the same thing?
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, or church or Christians anywhere else. That's right. And that's the and that's yeah. one of the problems is. We think too much as though the whole thing revolves around American Western Christianity. I'm trying to remember, I've been teaching in a lot of different places. I think it was on a podcast last week when I made reference to the fact that uh, people look and go, well, suffering and persecution is almost upon us. It's coming soon. Mm -hmm. And then the end times are about to happen. And the answer is, all right, the word us means Christians. And it doesn't mean Christians only in America, which is often what they mean. The reality is, what do you mean it's, suffering is about to come? It's already happening uh, all over the world. China, North Korea, uh, parts of Nigeria and parts of North Africa, the Middle East. Christians, they've been suffering for, for 2,000 years. And because they've been suffering for 2,000 years, that means the end times are already upon us. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. going to use this uh understanding of well once suffering begins to happen that's when the end times happen the answer is that it's been happening since the beginning because open up the book of acts and they were suffering and stephen was stoned, and james and peter were Mm -hmm. uh, uh, james was killed peter was uh, arrested and almost killed peter has to escape for his life and then the book of acts ends and guess what paul's killed peter's killed john's in, in prison this doesn't end so only when we think from this american western context can we even begin to say something like that yeah absolutely i know that uh
0: the, the concept, I, I had this Greek professor once. I'll start off with this way. And he when, when he taught us through the alphabet, he said, oh, and this is the letter key. And he, he started talking about chiasms, chiasms and uh, and saying, how everyone says there's chiasms in the Bible. There, there's not as many as everyone thinks. Not everything is a chiasm and whatnot. Uh, are there some chiasms in uh, the book of Revelation when it comes to the letters?
1: Absolutely. And there are a lot of chiasms in the Bible, but The reason why I would say something like that, identifying myself, is that one Greek (laughs) professor that you had, is because people go bananas with these things and and they make things up that that don't even fit or weren't intended. A chiasm, just for if you're listening to this, think of a, a greater than symbol, right? This little carrot thing, this greater than symbol. And so what happens is at the top of that symbol is the the letter A, and then the next point would be like letter point B, but indent point B. And then the next point would be point C and indent it. And then maybe you'll have a point D and indent it. And then maybe you go back to point C, B, and A. So you start with A and you end with A, then B, and then end with B, C, and with C, and then D in the middle. That's a chiasm. And, and sometimes chiasms can be A, B, B, A, uh, A, B, C, B, A, they, they, you know. Uh, an easy illustration ask, ask not what
0: your country could do for you but what you could do for your country that, right.
1: that's right right uh, i'm stuck on band-aids because band-aids stuck on me right <laughs> uh, that begins with i with i and and the middle yeah. is band-aid or i am stuck and the, and the middle is band-aid right this is a chiasm where you start with something and, and then end with uh, end with it so in the book of revelation you have in the seven letters they have this chiastic arrangement but it's not only a chiastic arrangement it, it's a little bit more complex than that but basically you have A B C D. B, C, A. So Ephesus would be the A, and Laodicea would be the A. Smyrna and Philadelphia would be the B and, and the Bs, and you work your way uh, through that, where the center then is Thyatira. Now, when you have a chiasm, and the fourth letter would be the, the D, the, the, the letter of the church in Thyatira, when you have a chiasm, usually that, the stress is on the center, it's on the one in the middle, and sometimes, it, you know, if it's A, B, C, C, B, A, then there's two Cs. Those two Cs are probably what's, what's accented or what's being stressed. In this case, it's the letter of the church in Thyatira. And I mentioned earlier that in the middle of that letter to Thyatira, it says, and all the churches will know that I'm he who searches the hearts and minds. So there you go. That's the center point, that God is the the judge, that God is in control, and, and he's in charge. Now, confirming that we have a chiastic arrangement, we have the fact that in the fourth letter, Jesus is named as the Son of God, and it's the only time... And now, each letter begins with, with a reference to Jesus, most specifically the resurrected Jesus in chapter one of the book of Revelation. To the church in Ephesus, the one who has the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, to the church in Smyrna, it's the first and the last uh, who was dead and has come to life. Each one of the seven letters begins with this description of Jesus. But in the fourth letter, which we're saying is the center, that's the only time that Jesus is named. And it says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. There, there you go. Now, what's very common is that in the center of a chiasm or the, the middle occurrence, someone or something is going to be named. For example, you see this in the seven seals. Right? If, if you take the seven seals, the fourth seal is the center of it. And then the fourth seal it says the rider on the four horses, his rider was named death. There you go. The naming of someone or something in the middle. Another actually really interesting and uh, quite revelatory example is in chapter 14. In chapter 14, you kind of have seven angels, but only six times is it mentioned an angel. And the the seventh time, which is the center one, the fourth occurrence, uh, the fourth occurrence in in verse 14 of chapter chapter 14, verse 14, it says, I looked and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. So you have these seven angels, but only six times are angels mentioned. And the seventh occurrence, which is the middle occurrence, is this one like a son of man. Well, there you go. it seems that you have this unit of seven, and in the middle one, Jesus is actually named as the Son of Man. So the fact that you have this chiastic arrangement seems to be supported then by the, by the structure of the seven letters. Now, in the middle of them then, you have the statement of, and all the church will know that I'm he who searches the hearts and minds. So what's happening then in the seven letters, and, what, and the reason why this is helpful, Is because the seven letters, John's writing to his churches to say, "Listen, guys, you are the lampstands. You are the ones through whom God is going to make Himself known. Put that light of Christ on your lampstand and let it shine. I know it's going to cause suffering. I know it's going to cause hardship, and I know you're being tempted and even threatened to compromise that. But don't do so because Christ is the one who's risen and glorified and resurrected, and He's going to give you the right to sit down with uh, with Him on His throne, just like He sits down with the Father uh, on the Father's throne." hang in there, overcome, persevere. And you might want to know I'm also the judge and I, and all the churches are going to know that I'm the one who searches the hearts and minds. So don't think you can kind of get away with compromise in order to avoid suffering or whatever it might be, and still come clean on, on judgment day. There's a threat of impending judgment, the consequences that are given to each of the seven, to the seven churches. And that becomes clear Once we understand the role of Thyatira, the fourth church in the center of this chiastic arrangement.
0: They are chiasms, but it's not merely a chiasm for chiasm's sake, right? That's not why these Jewish writers would write in this way.
1: Well, they write in this way to accent something that's already there and to highlight something that that's in other words, so we know. That the seventh, that this middle letter says, and all the church will know that I'm the one who searches the hearts and minds. Okay, we can take that, up. and now we can look at the way that John has structured the seven letters and go, okay, he really wants us to accent this point. So that point's there, and now we know to accent that point because of the way he's constructed this, uh, the seven letters.
0: Okay, and so ultimately too, we would say that this is something where if I'm a Jewish person, that like hearing chiasm is just part of my, my ears are going to ding. I'm going to know how to recognize those things. Uh, It's not something that you're going to have to point out to me.
1: No, these are, these are things that you're expecting. Uh, The book of Daniel is the most most, one of the most famous chiasms chapters Mm -hmm. two, three, four, five, six, and seven and chapter two. And in chapter seven, you have this kind of apocalyptic imagery of these uh, four kingdoms that are destroyed by God's divine kingdom. Chapters three, And six, you then have the people of God suffering. In one instance, it's Daniel's three friends who are suffering for not doing what they were supposed to do. And they're thrown in the fiery furnace. In chapter six, Daniel is thrown in the lion's den for doing what he was not supposed to do. So not doing what you're supposed to do or doing what you're supposed to do. And the people of God. And then in chapters four and five, you have these pagan kings. Who exalt themselves as if they are God, and then they're tried and tested by God. One repents, Nebuchadnezzar, and one doesn't repent. So you can see two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's an ABC, CBA structure that's clearly there. And without a question, it's written by, intent, intended by Daniel. And that's one of the keys is that when you see a chiasm, it has to be something that's apparent, that would be recognizable to a hearer. Remember, because they're not reading the letter, they're hearing it and something that they would be in tune to and not something that you have to like really go far fetched to, oh yeah, you know, I think this parallels this. It's like with the modern day guys is they they make up something and then they come up with some hidden meaning that's simply not even there in the text at all. So an, a chiasm just accents something that's already present.
0: Yeah, and then to use your application, we would say, like if we were in Daniel, we would say if, if chapters four and five were the peak, the C the part of it, we would say, okay, is there some sort of stress or meaning in there that's gonna help us understand w- what's happening in that formation?
1: Right. Yeah. And that is uh, even pagan kings will have to give an account to the one who is the judge. And then, of course, the A is the fact that God's divine kingdom is going to establish itself as the everlasting kingdom. And therefore, these pagan kings might want to actually repent. And and in the meantime, God's people, three and six, need to remain faithful to do what Christ has commanded them to do and therefore not do like bowing before pagan symbols or remaining faithful by praying when you're not allowed to pray in the meantime so yep
0: just digging into some more specifics who are the nicolation nicolations i can't even pronounce that word nick uh nicolations yeah, Nicolaitans. Uh, Nicolaitans, yeah I that uh it, what, what's going on with them in their letter to uh, pergamum all
1: right so we ultimately don't know who the nicolations are so in chapter two in the third the third letter of the letter of the church in pergamum, it says you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the nicolations now We don't know exactly who they were. That's problem number one. So it's ultimately difficult to figure out what their teaching is. But it seems that the context of the passage right, right prior to it, that they were teaching that it was okay to eat foods at a pagan ceremony and still be honoring of Christ. And what they may have been doing, and we don't know this for certain, but just kind of filling in a little bit of the background that may help us understand it better, is they may have been saying, well, Paul said that we can eat food sacrificed to idols because it was meat when it starts and it's meat when it ends. Therefore, it doesn't really matter. And in fact, some people have noted that what appears to be a discrepancy, Paul says, you can eat this meat. And John says, no, you can't go to the pagan feast at all. And the difference between the two is the fact that in the book of revelation, they were being challenged to go to the pagan feasts and participate in these pagan ceremonies and eat food. That's been sacrificed to the deity that uh, that is for whom that ceremony is an honor of. Whereas Paul, was talking about eating meat that was bought in the marketplace. So in the marketplace, meat that was sacrificed to a pagan deity actually was the best meat there is, because you sacrificed the best animal to, to those pagan gods. But that meat, because people didn't want to eat it, actually came at the best price. So, and Paul's like, hey, buy it, eat it if you want. However, if your brother or sister, if it causes them to stumble, don't eat it, Don't then don't eat it. Don't eat it in front of them. So a little bit different context. So it appears that one of the things that's happening in, in the, Best way to understand this, of course, is understand the the Greco-Roman context of what's happening behind the seven letters and behind much of the New Testament. And that is, in order to participate in the economic system, remember, religion and society and economics were all kind of intertwined, right? All, All one. In order to participate in the economic system, you have to participate in the festive festivals and honor the deity that behind that trade guild that you might be in, so Paul's a leather worker. So there's a trade guild for that, or iron metal workers, and there's trade guilds for that. And then you go to these pagan feasts. Well, these feasts were always in dedicated to the in honor of the of the gods. And so John's like, no, you can't do that. Well, if you don't do that, then you're out. If you're a craftsman or a tradesperson, and if you're out, you're not going to get a job anymore. So there's this great pressure to conform, to participate in the cults of the Roman society in order to survive economically. And John's like, well, yeah, I don't think you can do that. You Christians are going to have to band together and figure out how you can make a living all by yourselves.
0: It sounds like what you're saying, though, is if you don't participate in this pagan action, you won't be able to buy and sell.
1: <laughs> correct which obviously is oh. revelation 13 and the beast
0: yeah okay so the beast yeah. isn't something future that we should look forward to this no it's, it's, that was not, it's not not getting it's
1: not getting an injection for the virus it's not yeah that's okay it. okay so good moderna no. didn't mess me up Then i'm, no, I'm, I know I'm exactly where
0: you're going. okay all right good <laughs> cool uh did you have anything else that you wanted to finish up on That i had to interject with that because I was just funny yeah but...
1: no no not at all yeah
0: okay uh so i don't know just as, as we start wrapping this up one of the one of the bigger things anytime you get this this phrase that kind of pops up, it's almost like a popular phrase now, the synagogue of Satan, but the seven letters, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of have the saying about the synagogue of Satan. Like, what do we do with that? What does that even mean? Is that more of a theological thing? Would that question have meant something to the original audience?
1: So this is another background situation that's really important to understand the book of Revelation and then dealing with the larger context of anti-Semitism and everything else as well. One of the things that the early Christians did and the way they kind of got around this problem of sacrificing at the pagan gods and before the pagan deities and participating in the, in the cults is the fact that they claim that they were Jewish. And of course, the early Christian religion is a Jewish. Their whole answer is mm-hmm. we are the Jewish religion. Yeah. Abraham's our forefather. We follow the laws of Moses. Moses predicted Jesus. If you believe Moses, you believe me. Jesus himself said, he is the King of David, the great Davidic King. So they claim to be the true Jewish religion. And the reason why that was so significant was because the Jewish religion was actually a legal religion in the Roman empire. It had official legal status. And as a result of that, they were also allowed to be exempt from participation in the Roman cult. Hmm. Now, that's a rarity. Legal religions basically were, hey, this your religion is legal, but you have to honor Rome first. And as long as you sacrifice before the Roman gods and uh, pay homage to the Roman emperor as the embodiment of the gods, then you go do your own religion. No big deal. We don't care at all. But the Romans understood the fact that the Jews had this problem with, hey, we only have one God and we're not allowed to bow before other gods at all. So we can't, we can't do this. And the Romans said, okay, you know what? We'll acknowledge the fact that you do that as long as you pray for us. And so the Jews, by the way, actually sacrificed for the emperor in the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, we'll pray for you. We'll sacrifice for you, not to you, but for you. And we'll pray for you and the, well, the gods will be pleased because we're doing things, you know, that. And, and your mindset are pleasing our gods and, and we'll be good citizens, et cetera. And the Christians kind of wrote in those coattails for the early years. Now what's happening, however, in the Jewish synagogues was the fact they're going, Hey, those guys aren't Jewish. They, they, they've, they they've separated from us. They, you know, these Christians are following another God and this other Christ. And we don't honor, we don't recognize that. We, we think they're worshiping two gods they're worshiping a different God. This became part of the debate. And when the synagogues were shutting the door on the Christian communities, it was threatening the Christians now be, before Rome, because if they're being turned into Rome, they're going, hey, you don't have legal status then. If you're not a Jewish religion and the Jews say you're not, then you don't have legal status. So this is extremely problematic for the early Christians because it was their safe haven for not having to do the things that we just discussed that the Nicolaitans were saying that they could do. Now, John replies then, or the, se- the seven letters, the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Philadelphia, both reply by saying, you guys are the true Jews, and those who are members of the synagogue of Satan, don't worry, it's okay, because God has opened the door before you, even though the, the door of the synagogue has been shut. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that it's anti-Semitic. I mean, there's just no question about it. If you look at it f- from a modern context, it's anti-Semitic. The question is, was it anti-Semitic at the time? Now, before I answer that, let me note this. Number one, Christians have used this these two verses, Re- Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, for anti-Semitism especially in the early Christian church. I mean, the Epistle of Barnabas, some of the early Christian uh, leaders and some of the great church fathers were really anti-Semitic. In fact, Christianity is highly responsible for much of the anti-Semitism that the Jews have experienced for the last 2,000 years. We have to acknowledge that and we have to repent of that and, and, and apologize for that. That is not what the passage is saying. Jesus wasn't an anti-Semitic when he condemned the Jewish leaders being your fathers of the devil. That's, he's not anti-Semitic. Why not? Because he's Jewish, all right, and words, this isn't a hey. We are saying you people are bad people. you your members of the synagogue are saying. The way I would put it would be this: If Jesus was anti-Semitic, if John in the Book of Revelation is anti-Semitic, then Isaiah was anti-Semitic mm-hmm. because Isaiah rails on the Jewish people, right? And 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 rips on them, and so does Jeremiah and and the prophets. What was what's happening in the prophets? What's happening in Jesus? And what's happening in the Book of Revelation? Is you have Jewish people condemning other jewish people for not following the ways of the jewish religion and their it's a self-critique just mm-hmm. like uh, an african-american person today referring to another african-american person by words that us white people can't use yeah doesn't make them a racist they're, it's a self-critique and that's what the christians were doing they were critiquing other jews from the context of the fact that we are also jews practicing a jewish religion jews was jewish Fulfilling of the of the prophetic literature. Hmm.
0: So with that, I mean, I think that brings us to a good place to kind of land on because you have, you know, these letters which are prophetic, which by you know a prophet by nature is going to be a covenant enforcer. He's calling the covenantal people of God to repentance and to follow, uh, you know, God's law, God's command, or continue to remain faithful. Do what you were doing. So either commend or condemn uh, in that regard. Uh, and this is also an apocalypse though. It's something that is, you know, it, it's something that needs to be read in a certain way. And it was not unknown to the first century audience. Uh, so, so even when imagery gets weird and and whatnot, we have a much more difficult time reading these things than John's audience would, this would have, this would have hit home in a number of ways. They wouldn't have been scratching their heads as much as we would uh, and, and not just on the other thing like all, all of this together makes sense to them
1: yeah exactly yeah and and the reference to uh, synagogue of satan wouldn't have gone, they wouldn't have gone oh yeah you know what we just hate the jewish people like no we're, we're jewish people in all these contexts uh, exactly yeah, that's
0: not even a category that, like from an anti-semitic standpoint that's not even a category that they would have dealt with no like, not at all. yeah right yeah. right so if, if anything it's just you're non-romans <laughs> and so there's an issue there because you're not worshiping caesar uh, yes, exactly <laughs> yeah but uh cool well hey this is fun. Anything else you want to add on as we wrap up letters?
1: Well, yeah, let me, let, me, let me kind of summarize what I think is maybe the main theme of the seven letters and what's happening in these letters and then how it applies to us uh, today uh, very briefly. The seven letters are exhortations or encouragements in a prophetic way. I mentioned Tade Lege, that thus says, which is thus says the Lord in the prophetic world, from John to the churches or from Jesus to the churches, encouraging them to maintain their witness to the, to the world. The problem with that is, is that the world is hostile and they have been being challenged by the world to compromise their faith so that they can avoid persecution and compromising their faith, of course, is to minimize their prophetic witness. They're being challenged to compromise their faith on a religious way of giving due to the pagan gods, whatever it may be, or for economic purposes so that they can buy and sell, they can participate in in, in the economy. And Jesus is saying, no, follow the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross, and persevere for the sake of the nations and loving them so much that they might come to know Christ, just as Christ loved us and laid down his life for us. Hang in there and persevere, even though the world is going to oppose you and persecute you. Now, what's interesting is I was doing a little studying today for, for uh, something else I'm working on, and I came across an article by Craig Koster, who's a great uh, biblical scholar. And he makes reference to the fact that at the time, referring to the seven churches, he says, in their self-satisfaction with wealth, they had lost their vitality and had become indistinguishable from the surrounding social climate. Let me say it again. In their satisfaction with wealth or self-satisfaction with wealth, they had lost their vitality and become indistinguishable from their surrounding social climate. And I thought, that is so true. (laughs) Yeah, that's us, right? That is so true for today. And I think that's something that we need to go, whoa, wait a minute. Have we compromised our faith and in doing so diminished or even lost our witness Mm -hmm. in order that we might avoid persecution or suffering for either religious reasons or socioeconomic reasons. And I think absolutely. And the fact that we just, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, that we have this mindset of it. Oh, when persecution comes our way, then the end of the world's going to come. It's like, no, We've lost our perspective of the fact that we are one body of Christ globally. And perhaps we have this wealth and prosperity and privilege and power. And maybe Christ has given that to us so that we can use it for the sake of those who don't. Uh, the Christians in India, the Christians in Nigeria, the Christians in uh, China, the Christians in North Africa, or the Christians in North Korea. And we, I think Christians are interesting. If you walk through a store, you walk through a, uh, any context. You can know someone for months. You can know someone for a long time ago. Oh, oh, you go to church? Because we've, we've lost our witness. We've become so much like the surrounding co- culture that we become indistinguishable from them. And that is what the seven letters are saying. Look, I know your deeds. You know, we say that, right? And as soon as, I, as, soon as we talk about our deeds, we become uncomfortable, right? Because our, our congregation is going to go, oh, uh, wait, nope, saved by grace, not by works. Look, we can't get around it. This five of the seven letters have references. I know your deeds. And I think many Christians today, I, I think Jesus would say, you know, I think you've lost your first love, which is the thought of the church in Ephesus. I think you've lost your deeds. I think you've lost your way. I think you've lost your witness. And the church in Ephesus was told, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your lampstand away. Your identity as a church is to make Christ known. And when that church is indistinguishable from the surrounding culture, then the consequence consequences, I'm, I'm taking your lampstand away. Now, maybe individuals from the congregation might still be whatever we want to call saved, because that's just the way we think. Is this is an individual mindset. But I think we need to read these letters and the book as a whole and go, yeah, this is speaking to us also, even though its original context was the first century.
0: Yeah. You know, just to speak on that too, especially if someone's listening to this, having an issue with that, because you brought up the W word, the works word. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I know this is, these are conversations that I've had in my context number of times being, yeah. uh, you know, on, on staff and a member of a reformed Baptist church. Obviously we're going to be very steeped in the five solas. I'm a big fan of sola fide. It's, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my favorite however, mom. yeah. yeah and, and, but even with that, when you read someone like a Calvin, and when he, when he writes on these topics, he, he actually, uh, and I, I read this years ago, I should go back and, re- and revisit it. He, he makes the allusion to the sun when when he talks about faith and works and it's like no it's like the, it's like separating the sun itself from its rays of light and heat that come onto the earth like you can't like the mm-hmm. the the rays and the heat are like the works and the sun is like the faith and you can't have one without the other so you can't mm-hmm. say you have faith to not have the works they're so intertwined with one another right. uh, and i think that's just a great tangible example especially for a popular notion in a, in a mod- modern american christianity that says i just got to say the prayer and i'm i'm waiting to get zapped off to heaven to you know my timeshare when I'm done uh it's like no th- these things matter we need to take passages like matthew 25 seriously in which jesus's sheeps are or sheep are the ones who are like doing things they were they were clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and visiting those in prison <laughs> like those are works and and yeah. we, we need to take seriously how those things play out
1: yeah yeah and consider why uh, why do we have the wealth why do we have the power why do we have the privilege and, and then how can I use them as You know, Paul says in Second Corinthians eight and nine that if he gives it to you, it's so that you can bless others, and if you do that, he's going to give you more. But if you don't, he's going to take it away. Uh, I think we need to really reckon with that. So,
0: yeah, good stuff. So consistent biblical theology, as you've been saying, I think in one of the first episodes, nothing is taught in Revelation that's not taught anywhere else in scriptures, and you know, we can affirm that uh, throughout. You have a last word.
1: Yeah, let's note here. I hopefully that what we've been able to do in these four sessions now is kind of put a frame on, on how to understand the book and kind of a little bit of background and context. And if they want, I'd encourage the listeners to go back to the very first podcast of the German truth podcast, like one through 21 or 22 are, mm-hmm. are walking you through the book of revelation, one chapter, one or two chapters at a time and, and start to tackle it and start to start to grapple with the book of revelation. Now that you have this kind of this framework to, to help you understand it better.
0: Yeah, and then your book, follow the lamb, which we've talked about. I, I as talking through letters today, I'm remembering that uh, David de Silva's book Unholy Allegiance. I think mm-hmm. he goes through some of the letters and even some of the imperial cult worship yeah. uh, things oh, that I we, we, we would touched would on tonight. So, and that's a good layman's level uh, book. It's not overly scholarly. Fun being able to get together with you guys. Hope you guys are appreciating what's happening here.
1: Check out Rob's blog on Pathios,
0: You know, see see what things are going on there as well.
1: Hey, you know, Vinny, also, hey, we're going to do some episodes uh, coming up soon in the next couple of weeks on some questions and answers. So we want to encourage anyone listening as well. Feel free to send in your questions and let us know what they are uh, so that we can begin to answer them on uh, some future podcasts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Hope everyone has a great time doing what you're doing and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you
1: next time.